Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Well, I hope everyone's awake. If you haven't had coffee, I hope that helped you wake up. Um, how are we doing this morning? Good? Excellent. Did everyone have a good Christmas? Happy New Year? Yes? No? Okay. Um, I got a chance to go see my family out in North Carolina, so if you noticed I wasn't here for the Eve of Eve service, that's where I was celebrating with them, and so it was good to be back uh, there and just being able to rest and relax with my family, celebrate Christmas, but um, there always comes a time, and this is no knock on my family, I love them, but there always comes a time where you get into uh, a routine and you go on vacation, and in that vacation you're like, okay, I'm ready to get back to routine, and so um, by the time I left, uh, I was like, all right, I'm ready to get back to Indy. I'm fueled up, and uh, it was a good time to just rest and relax, but let's get after it for 2021. So I don't know if any of you feel like that for this year, but I'm excited to see what God does for us. Um, it's always fun to preach this sermon. Um, I don't know if this was a joke back when we started this or if it was just something we had planned, but the last four years I've been able to preach this New Year's Eve or New Year's sermon. Um, and I don't know if it's because of my love for lists and resolutions or if Dwayne was just like, I don't want to preach after I vacationed, whatever. Um, I've been doing this for the last four years and it's always been a joy to be able to get up here and look at God's word and see how it can help us reorient our life uh, in the new year. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, it's three days, four days into 2021, right? Um, does anybody feel different from 2020? No? Yeah? All right. Not really, right? Um, what I hope that we can do as believers um, is we, as we start this series epiphany off, uh, as well as kind of taking a look at uh, the rule of life is what uh, we're going to be looking at through this passage this morning. Um, I hope for us, we can look back at 2020, um, even in the midst of sorrow and loss and mourning. But as believers, I hope we can look back at 2020 and understand and know the goodness of God, like we just sang. I know 2020 was a, 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 a probably a time for mourning and loss for a lot of us. Um, and scripture doesn't shy away from those realities in this world. We're called to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we're called to mourn with those who mourn. But what I hope that we can do when we look back at this year is see God's goodness to us and his graciousness, and that even in the trying and suffering and trials that we walked through, we know that God is working for our good and ultimately his glory. I'm reminded of James 1 as I think about 2020. As he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so I hope that when we look back at 2020, even though it could have been a time of suffering and mourning and, and loss and anxiousness and depression, whatever it might be, we can look back with hope. Because as believers, we know that this is not it. That this world is just a place where sin rules and reigns to a degree, but God is ultimately over all things, and he is working all of it, even 2020, all of it for our good and his glory. So that's my hope for us as we look at this year, and then as we look forward, um, preparing our lives, uh, as we'll talk about this morning, kind of with a rule of life. So I'm big on resolutions, I'm big on lists, 
I'm in Enneagram 3, and so that's just something that I, I love. Um, and so I, I get to sit down every New Year's and, and kind of like look at my life and then plan for the beginning of the next year. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys are like me. Anybody get, have resolutions already made? Any type of lists written out? Is anybody skeptical of 2020 and you're like, I'm not going to make any lists because I saw what happened? <laughs> no? Okay. Well, the next question was, has anybody broken it? But if nobody's made a list, you don't really need to break anything, right? So there you go. Um, so what I did this week was I started to look at some of the statistics when it comes to resolutions uh, that people make. And it's interesting to see that almost 42% of people quit their resolutions after one month. So by February, 42% of people have said, you know what, I'm done with this. And almost 56% of people quit by June. So six months in, everybody's done. Now, I don't include 2020 in that because I think by March, everybody was like, you know what, I got to create a new life because this is a pandemic and I got to figure things out. So not including 2020, this is what statistically people will do when it comes to resolutions. So I decided to do some more research on what people considered resolutions, but specifically for 2021. And so I want to read you the top five resolutions that people have given for this year. The first one is my New Year's resolution is to get fully dressed for Zoom meetings, <laughs> with a parenthesis that says, it's nice to have business up top and casual down below. The second New Year's resolution was to stop making resolutions and lists, so I succeed at something this year. <laughs> oh. The third one was to read more, with a caveat, so I put subtitles on my TV shows. <laughs> I mean, you're killing two birds with one stone, so that's nice. The fourth one was to relearn social cues after being at home all 2020. I mean, I think some of us can continue to relearn social cues, even not being home. And then finally, buy all the 2020 calendars and burn them. <laughs> I think that's a good resolution. <laughs> but I, I did go back to 2020 to see what most people put as their resolutions. And these are going to probably sound similar or standard to most of us to get healthy, to get organized, to spend less, and to save more, which I think actually was the reverse in the pandemic. Same thing, travel was a big thing for 2020. I don't think that happened a lot. Uh, and then the fifth one was read more, which, I mean, from people in my circles, it seemed like reading was an easier thing to pick up. But these top five for the beginning of 2020 are pretty standard when it comes to resolutions. And I think we're, there's some solidarity with the top five for 2021 that we kind of understand. But most of these resolutions, although not sinful or inherently wrong, need to have something deeper. Right? They need to have a greater foundation, especially for us as believers. You see, my goal this morning is to help us fix our eyes on something greater. As Hebrews would write, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. So I want our lives for 2021 and on to be less about resolutions and more about a rule of life. And what I mean by a rule of life is that it is a rhythm or pattern in your life that you consistently grow in as you mature in Christ. That's what Paul writes in Colossians 1, right? That we would grow in our maturity and our understanding of God's will, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. The difference between a rule of life and a resolution is that a rule of life contains spiritual, relational, and vocational rhythms 
that help us sustain our walk in Christ that we've been called to. In his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Peter Scazzaro writes, a rule of life is an intentional, conscious plan to keep God at the center of everything we do. So the beauty about this idea of a rule of life, and this should be an amen for those who tend to fail the resolutions like I do, is that a rule of life is just something that we continue to mature in year in and year out. We don't have to keep making new resolutions to try to get better or try to accomplish something. We can see that it's just, okay, if I need to mature in my faith, I'm just, I want to get better at reading the Bible. And so we mature in these things. So here's what I want to do this morning. In closing out the book of Colossians, if you guys hadn't noticed, we kind of missed 17 verses when we ended it. We're going to close the book out, but we're also going to start Epiphany. And I think it's pretty cool that God made our sermon series kind of this way, the way it ended, and then we did Advent, and then we're walking into Epiphany, closing Colossians, because Paul here at the end of this book is kind of giving a rule of life for the Christian to live. And as you've seen, or if you haven't seen on our social medias, we kind of gave an explanation of what Epiphany actually is. And as you see in the subtitle of the graphic, it's, it's about the manifestation of Christ. This season focuses on Christ revealing his divinity and his saving plan for the nations. It establishes a time of renewal for the believer to recommit to a life of faithfulness to Christ. So here these th two things are merging, a rule of life as well as recommitting our lives to a faithfulness to Christ, specifically as we walk through Epiphany through spiritual formation. So in the next coming weeks, we're going to talk about the Word of God. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about fasting. We're going to talk about rest and what the Bible has to say about all of those things and how they grow us and mature us into the image of Christ and how as we continue to pursue those spiritual formations, we continue to look more like Him. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. This is where we'll be this morning. Colossians 4, starting in verse 2, Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how you are, how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristocharus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Herophilus. 
Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to bless this time, and then we'll jump into this. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it gives us a way in which we can live obediently and knowing that as we live obediently to what you have called us to, we find joy and comfort and peace and hope. And so, Lord, as we kick 2021 off, Lord, I pray that we would continue to grow in our knowledge and love for your word, our love for prayer, our love for gospel community, and our love for others around us. And I pray that you would just continue to make us more into the image of Christ and help us to know that joy and comfort and peace that you promise us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are three points I want to take a look at this morning from this passage that pertain to what I call a rule of life. And they go like this. A Christian should be devoted to prayer, should be faithful in evangelism, and should be committed to gospel community and gospel partnerships. So our rule of life should be dominated by these three things. Devoted to prayer, faithful in evangelism, committed to gospel community and gospel partnerships. Now these may sound like resolutions or goals to get better at or to accomplish, and for some of us, if we don't have a very good foundation for them, they might be. This may be true that you have a resolution to be better at prayer, to be better at reading God's word, to be better at evangelizing. But here's what I want to challenge you with this morning. You see, a goal or resolution is something you want to achieve, right? Like running a marathon. But a rule of life is a rhythm that has been established by commitments that you've made, commitments to yourself, commitments to others. And a commitment is things that you put in place to get to that goal. So if we're running a marathon, the commitment that we're going to make is running X amount of miles each day to get better at running a marathon. But I will say that our commitments are going to look different. Our commitments of how and when and where we practice these blessed realities are going to look different for each and every one of us, right? Our life, our work, our children, our physical capacities, they're going to reflect those commitments and those responsibilities. The way I accomplish my commitments as a single guy is going to be different to a person who has children. So I want to lay that out there for us. But the goal of the Christian life is this, is to dwell in deep communion with Christ and to be firmly anchored in our union with Him. That's our goal. It isn't to achieve an American dream. It isn't to have a huge savings account, to live a comfort-filled life, to have a six-pack, to start a nonprofit. Those aren't the goals of the Christian life. The goal is to abide deeply in Christ and then steward what he has given us well. So I want to commit ourselves to these rhythms that ultimately grow us deeper in our communion with him. 
And hopefully that overflows into our lives inside the church as well as outside the church. As Jesus tells us, we judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so who we are internally should then reflect externally with others around us. And then what we can do is we can take this hope of the gospel into a hurting world around us. And if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that a a lot of people are hurting inside the church and outside the church. There are a lot of people who don't have hope they have, or they have misplaced hope in things that will never satisfy them. There's a lot of bitterness and animosity. And instead of, instead of arguing over politics or how a pandemic should be handled or secondary issues inside and outside the church, what we should be doing is we should be a beacon of hope for those around us because we have the gospel We have a greater hope that is anchored in our soul that helps us live in such a way that is different and countercultural to this world, even in a pandemic, even in a political climate where people are anxious and frustrated and not willing to listen to each other. Our hope as Christians should be a light. The church should be full of peacemakers, merciful and meek. And to be honest, 2020 should have been a seed or a ground for fertile seed to be grown. But from my vantage point, and maybe not so much in our church, but maybe some of you have been feeling this, from my vantage point, we have gotten caught up in a lot of secondary issues that ended up exhausting us and making us feel like we're actually working when we're not doing anything at all. Like running on a treadmill thinking we're getting somewhere, but we're just tiring ourselves. So my hope this morning is that as we walk into 2021, we would be devoted to prayer, devoted to evangelism, devoted to gospel community and gospel partnerships, and that would be our rule of life, not just in this year, but into into eternity. So my question this morning is, what will help us establish that rule of life? Well, I've already said it, being devoted to prayer. So let's look again at verses 2 through 4 of what Paul says in being devoted to prayer. He says, continually steadfast in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I love how the NASB actually puts it, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, when it comes to prayer, I think everybody can probably say, I need to do it better, right? Or I need to get better at prayer. Anybody not think that? Because I, I think that all the time. But Paul's aim here is not to beat us up. So if you're thinking, oh, well, here we go. Josh has taken Paul's words and he's just going to beat us up and make us feel bad for how we don't pray well. That's not my aim and that's not Paul's desire here. Paul's desire is, in, is to encourage us to pray but having a foundation and understanding that the love of prayer comes from what God is doing in the church as well as in areas around your life. He's encouraging us to look around and see the goodness of God, and that should inflame our hearts to pray more and to be thankful for what God has done. Look at the example that Paul gives us. In chapter 1, he writes in verses 9 and 10 to the church, He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that God may fill you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So there's an excitement from Paul that he is encouraged what's happening in the church of Colossae, and he is continually praying because of what God has done there. But not only in the church, he's also praying because of what's happening in the world in regards to the spread of the gospel. He writes in chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, we, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world, and it is bearing fruit and increasing. Guys, prayer is not a duty to fulfill, but a privilege to enjoy. It is a privilege to enjoy as believers when we look around and see what God is doing in our lives, in our church, and around our city. We can't help but have thankfulness. And we pray. So Paul here is not beating us up over our lack of prayer, but he's encouraging us to pray. And we pray because of what God has done and is doing around us. It's not guilt that makes us pray, but God's good work. So I encourage you to look around, to be thankful. Paul is going to tell us to be watchful, to discern what God is doing. And that should lead us to pray in thanksgiving. So in Paul's encouragement, he gives us two ways to pray. I just mentioned one. The first you'll see there is to be watchful. Or as one translation will put it, be alert. This isn't a command to stay awake, although maybe we should as we pray if we're only praying before we go to sleep. But we should be alert. What he's saying is that we need to be watchful with our lives and how we live, and we need to be watching the world around us, and we need to be praying for it. Jesus says in Matthew 24, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know of what day your Lord is coming. Here's the reality for Christians. We know, we don't know when Christ is coming, but we know he is coming back. And since Jesus has told us that he is coming back, he is going to eventually make all things new, right? This is what he's told us. So we know this truth. So we are watchful not for his coming return, but we are watchful for what is going on in this world, and we are praying for it, knowing that return will come. Paul is saying, knowing this reality should move you to pray for the world around you. It's to be awake to the reality of this world and to pray for doors to be open, for the word to go forward, and to be watchful of your own life and how you live so that you bring glory to God. As 1 Peter 5.8 reminds us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. So we need to be watchful of our own lives as well as the world around us so that we can discern but how we can also pray for the world. The second part of Paul's encouragement is to pray with thanksgiving. Now this shouldn't come as a shock to you. If you remember the book of Colossians at all, you should know that thanksgiving was a command throughout the book. Seven times Paul commands the believers to live with or abound in thanksgiving. Four times he tells the Colossian church to pray with thanksgiving. A true appreciation of the believer's status in Christ. That as Colossians tells us, 
that we have been made dead to our sin and alive in Christ, all of our sins forgiven. We are destined for glory. This should lead us to a sense of thanksgiving and should serve as a powerful deterrent to any type of false teachings, but it should lead us to pray. That's why any time that I've been able to preach on the book of Colossians when it comes to Thanksgiving, I would encourage you guys to have a gratitude journal. I don't know if you guys remember that at all, but it's just a journal in which each day you write down something you are grateful for that the Lord has done, and then next to it, you put a prayer that you hope the Lord will answer. When I've done that since September, and it's really cool to just kind of go back to see answered prayer or where the Lord has brought me through certain seasons of my life, even in just a couple months. So I encourage you to, to write these things down, to think through prayerfully what you can be thankful for. Now, I want to highlight just what I just said for a, a moment, that Thanksgiving can be a deterrent to false teachings. If you remember through the book of Colossians, there were false teachers within the church as well as within the area that Paul is trying to combat. Now, today, we do have false teachers, right? There are plenty of prosperity preachers. There are plenty of health, wealth that will, will teach incorrect, and we need to be aware of them. We need to be in our words so that we can see what is wrong and prove what is right. But what I want to focus in on false teachers is actually more of ourselves, Right? There is nobody that preaches more to yourself than you do. So how do you battle the voice inside your head that tells you those false teachings? It's by reminding yourself of the goodness of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you were once blind, but now you see. That you were once far off, but now God has drawn you near to him. That there is now no condemnation for you, that you are in Christ Jesus. And what you do is you bless the Lord, that he is yours and you are his, reminding yourself over and over and over again of the goodness and glorious God, and that he calls you his own. Until you can't help but sing these realities inside yourself. False teachers are around us, yes, but I think for us, we can be our own false teacher, especially when we don't preach the gospel to ourselves. Now here's what's striking about Paul as he continues on in verses 3 and 4, is we, we, we see a prayer request that he gives. Through this whole book, he has been talking about uh, the glories and the supremacy of Christ, but now at the end of his letter, he gives a prayer request. And look at what he says. He says, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on the account of which I am in prison. So here's Paul's situation. He's in prison, chained to a guard, most likely chained to a guard that's going to be right next to him the entire time he's in prison. And you see throughout the book of Colossians, there isn't a complaint that he's in prison. There isn't, no, it, there isn't any type of um, going on about his victimhood of being imprisoned um, unfairly. He's not complaining about what prison is like. He's not complaining even that he's chained to a man his entire day. But what he is praying for is that the word of God goes forward. That anybody chained to me, I'm praying that a door of the gospel is opened despite my circumstances. This is striking to me. 
And I hope it's striking to you. I, I hope that you can ask the question and answer fairly, how would you respond in this moment? I know how I would respond. I don't think it would have been like Paul. And I can say that because 2020 was a very hard year, right? And how many of us responded this way, that the gospel would go forward despite our circumstances? How many of us prayed that the word would be opened because of our suffering? What's amazing is Paul's prayer is that he is filled with more joy by the gospel being let loose in the world than him being let loose from his chains. Convicting. But Paul also prays for the gospel to advance with boldness and clarity. He goes on to say, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So if you read through the New Testament, when Paul asks for prayer, typically the two things that he most commonly asks for in prayer is boldness and clarity. Because both are vital to the gospel going out. The gospel is vital enough to be preached and shared with boldness, and it's vital enough that we have to be clear with what we are saying. There's no point of being bold if we're unclear about what the gospel teaches. So we pray for clarity and for boldness when we preach the gospel. And some of us may have experienced this already, and some of us may have not, but there is going to be aspects of the gospel when we are bold and when we are clear that people are not going to like and so we pray like Paul for boldness and to be faithful to what the truth is in order to see Indianapolis reach for the gospel. It's not our job to try to make the gospel easy for people to understand or water down so that they agree with it. Guys, the Bible says the gospel is offensive. It is a fragrant aroma to those who are being saved and it is a stench of death to those who are perishing. That's the true reality of the gospel. Calling people to repent of their sin is not popular. Calling people to truly follow Jesus is not really acceptable. But this is what we've been called to. This is what we've been saved to. And we have to trust that God will do the work of saving. We just need to be bold and clear and faithful with the word. That brings me to my next point of our rule of life. In boldness and in clarity, we need to be faithful in our evangelism. Paul is concerned with two things when it comes to evangelism here in this text. How we live and how we speak. Take a look at verse 5. He writes, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. The idea here is making the most of every opportunity. If you go to Ephesians, this same phrase is used, and in the Greek it means that we are to redeem the time. There are two ancient Greek words used for time that we, we kind of get this understanding is chronos and keros, which have the idea simply of day upon day, hour upon hour, which is the keros. Actually, no, chronos, sorry. The other had the idea of definite portion of time, a time where something should happen. It's the difference between time and the time. And the idea here is of the time. It's a definite season of opportunity that God has given to us that we as believers should seek to redeem. Literally, we should seek to buy the opportunity. You see this 
This phrase is a metaphor taken from merchants and traders who diligently observe and improve the seasons of merchandise and trade in the ancient world. So for Christians, it's a great part of wisdom for us to redeem our time, right? We take care and we take the opportunity to improve our families to the best of the purposes of the glory of God. And while it's in our power or in our hands, we we seek to make the most of every opportunity through evangelism or sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, the mark of wisdom in a man or woman is that they know they don't have a lot of time and they want to make the most of every opportunity for the glory of God. And if I can be honest with you, and we can be honest with ourselves, how many of us are good at making the best use of our time? Especially when it comes to those outside the church. How many of us find it easier to see a coworker and just say, hey, and not even engage with their lives? Or we go to the store or the gym and we just put headphones on. Or we drive into the garage and not do anything about engaging our neighbors. Or some of us have conversations with our neighbors, yet it doesn't go deeper than surface level types of conversations and we never share the gospel with them, but we've known them for 20 years. We miss the opportunities to engage the world with the gospel. So here's my challenge for 2021 for you guys. It's a challenge that I gave myself And when it comes to evangelism, I I do think that there are certain things that you need to plan to try to accomplish. So maybe make a plan to try to accomplish, to get better at, or to take the opportunity to share the gospel with those around you. So here's what I did, and I, I can really only give this example, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, right? I, a couple years back, decided to cut certain parts of my budget in order to be able to pay for CrossFit. Now, yes, I do CrossFit, and the first rule of CrossFit is to tell you all, so there you are. But CrossFit is expensive. And so to have some skin in the game for me, I had to cut some things out in order to be a part of it so that I could be a gospel light to those around me. And God has been faithful. I haven't seen any salvations, but I've seen people who claim to be agnostics or atheists, even going onto our website and listening to some of my sermons because they know I'm a preacher. I've had gospel conversations with people who have left the church and they continue to keep hanging out with me even though I'm sharing the gospel. And so this is my challenge to you guys is maybe put some skin in the game and think of things that is going to make you be consistent with evangelizing to a dark and dying world. We need to be wise with how we live. But we also need to be wise with how we speak. Paul writes in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious. If you guys know me well enough, you know that I love the show The Office, right? It's probably one of the reasons why I haven't taken most of the opportunity of time is because I'm watching The Office. But now that it's off Netflix, I'm not getting Peacock. I'm not going down that road. Um, But when you watch The Office, doesn't it upset you that the only Christian on the show is Angela? Right? She's negative. 
She's unloving. She's demeaning to others. But Paul is saying if we belong to Jesus, there should be a graciousness about our speech. The opposite of how Angela responds to people. There should be a graciousness in our speech, both in tone and in content, but it should also be seasoned with salt. Now think of this. Paul had been given the call and commission to declare the mystery of Christ to the Gentiles. That, that was his call. And yes, there are specific people in this church that God has blessed this church with who have the gift of evangelism. But that doesn't let everyone else of us off the hook. We are called to make disciples. We are called to have an answer for the faith that we believe So Paul's encouragement here is assuming that one, we will have those opportunities, and two, that we would be faithful and gracious in our speech, in both content and in what we say and how we say it, that is showing the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul envisions here a church expected to hold its own in the social settings of the world, in the marketplace, at a table, and everywhere else that we are to win attention to the gospel by the attractiveness of Christians who share it and who live it out. So Paul tells us to be watchful and thankful, to speak graciously, and to live graciously, redeeming our time. But to be faithful to evangelism, we also have to evangelize with the word of God. Go back to verse 4. Paul says, I'm sorry, go back to verse 3. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. You see, it's not enough to just have people in your house. It's not enough to just say that you're a Christian. It's not enough to just be nice to those around you and to have relationships that are surface level that never get to the gospel. We have to preach the word in order for people to be saved. I want to share something I read this week from a Barna report where Christians were asked about the importance of evangelism. This is what most said. Despite recognizing the importance of telling people about Christ and claiming to know how to share their faith, a significant portion of practicing Christians say it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Despite recognizing the importance of telling people about Christ, Christians believe it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs. How sad is that? We have to be faithful to evangelism, and it has to come with boldness, with clarity, with graciousness, us taking the opportunity, but it has to also be accompanied by the Word of God. Romans 10 tells us this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. Of Christ. Faith comes through the word of Christ, and we have to be faithful to preach that word day in and day out. When it's popular, when it's not popular, when it's going to cause an offense, maybe it causes relationships to be strained, 
we have to be faithful to preach the word of Christ. With graciousness, yes, but boldness and clarity. Evangelism is not an imposition to the world. It, it's the greatest hope. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to understand that if we don't share this good news, people are not going to be saved and they're going to be separated eternally from God. It's not an imposition. It's also not a personal testimony. Evangelism is not social action and public involvement. Evangelism isn't even apologetics. Evangelism, guys, is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came and lived a perfect life, died a death we deserved by taking on the wrath of God for our sin and raising three days from the grave in order to defeat sin and death on our behalf, sealing the election for those who believe in Christ. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is what we are called to be faithful to. John Stott says, to evangelize does not mean to win converts, but simply to announce the good news irrespective of its results. We are called to be faithful in our evangelism and to trust the Lord that he is going to change the hearts of those who hear. And we pray, we plead with the Lord to save. And finally, the last area that can help us establish a rule of life is by being committed to gospel community and gospel partnerships. And I'll be honest with you, I almost skipped over these verses. In fact, Greg actually texted me, hey, what are you preaching on this week? And I was like, well, I'm going to go from verse 2 to 18, but I'm probably going to focus on 2 to 6, 2 to 7. But I started to read more of this passage and found great comfort. And I thought, this isn't just a farewell. What this is, is Paul showing us what real life ministry is like and knowing and believing that there are no throwaway verses, I, I recognize that this is also important to us. So to have an established rule of life, we need to be committed to gospel community and gospel partnerships. So here we have these men delivering a letter from Colossae. Now, if you weren't aware of this, there was no USPS. There was no United Postal Service of Rome. So what Paul had to do was he had to choose faithful men to travel across long stretches of roads to deliver these letters to these churches. And so this is who we have. So let's take a look at the gospel community that's around Paul. We see in verse 7, Tychicus. We don't know much about him, but Paul wants us and the church to know he is a beloved and faithful brother who will give them this letter as well as let them know how Paul is doing and what's going on in his life and how prison is. Paul hasn't really talked about that much in this letter. He's focused on the supremacy of Christ. And so what he does is he's like, Tychicus will tell you how I'm doing. But trust him, he's a faithful brother. Then he talks about Onesimus. If you read the letter of Philemon, the, the beautiful reality of Onesimus is this. You discover that he was once a runaway slave. But listen how Paul describes him in verse 9. He is our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Paul isn't just saying, hey, Onesimus is a runaway slave from Colossae, so he's one of you from that region or area. But Paul is saying he is one of you in Christ. So he may have run away as a slave, but he is coming back as a faithful brother. Receive him. And you can, you can read the beautiful reality of that story or, or more into that as you get into Philemon. But how... 
how great is, is it to see this runaway slave now being called a brother returning home? Paul goes on. He keeps naming some of the men who are with him. Aristarchus. We have Mark, fame for the gospel of Mark. We have Jesus, who, I mean, rightfully is called Justice. People would probably get confused. So it's like, I'm going to go by a different name. And then Paul goes on to say this about these men. Verse 11 says, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. In other words, what Paul is saying is, These are the only three Jews that have stood with me in my ministry. And even though there were only three of them, look at how they impacted Paul. Look at the end of verse 11. He says, And they have been a comfort to me. These three men around Paul have been a comfort and a difference to him in his ministry. And what I want us to take from that is this. Never underestimate how much comfort we can be to one another just by being with each other and sharing life with one another. Guys, we need to understand that gospel community has been designed in such a way that is for our encouragement, one to each other. That's why it's so important that we don't just gather on Sunday mornings and hear each other sing, but we are involved in each other's lives. We are sharing our vulnerabilities, our sin, what's going on, where we're struggling, so that each of us can enter in and be a comfort, a gospel comfort to one another. Don't underestimate how much comfort you can be to a brother or sister in Christ. I've experienced this, and I know some of us in this room can say the same thing, but please don't underestimate it. We see Epaphras, and we know from the beginning of the book that Epaphras was with Paul, and there's some things that Paul tells us about him, but for some reason, Paul needed to tell the church a little bit more that they had not known about how Epaphras was doing. Paul writes in verse 11, he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may know or you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Paul wants them to know how hard Epaphras has been working by praying for them. They needed to know that their spiritual growth and stability in the gospel was partly because Epaphras was working hard to pray and for us, we need to recognize that prayer is hard work. It doesn't come easy. For some reason, we've gotten into our head that when people say they need help, that we think there's more tangible things that we can do other than pray for them. Ronald Dunn wrote in a book on prayer a couple of years back. He gives this story. He says, just imagine you're watching a movie and it's a western one. And the hero is about to ride out into the sunset to hunt down the bad guy and finally finish him off. And on his way out, there, the hero comes across a remote mission chapel. And there's a chaplain there. And he says, I want to help. Let me come with you. Let me fight off the bad guy with you. And the hero says to him, no, no, no. Stay here and just pray. 
So the hero rides off on his horse, and the chaplain sinks down to his knees and starts to pray. And Ronald Dunn asks in his book, which one of those guys do you want the camera to follow? Where is the real action happening? Which of these two men is doing the real work? And Colossians 4 reminds us that it doesn't get more gritty than praying for our brothers and sisters. If you want to break a sweat for the kingdom of God, then fall on your knees and pray for your brothers and sisters that they may mature in the faith of Jesus Christ. If you want to do something grand for the kingdom of God, just pray. Pray for your brothers and sisters. You need others praying for your spiritual maturity, and they also need your prayers. Again, don't underestimate community and comfort, but don't underestimate the power of prayer. And then Paul sends greetings from Luke. From, greetings from Luke, just to think about Paul, Mark, and Luke all in the same jail cell, right? That's most of the New Testament. It's pretty cool. But then we see Demas, and if we continue to read through the New Testament, by 2 Timothy, he had actually abandoned Paul. So, here we have these names of these men who are with Paul. And I want, to ask, I want us to ask the question, why is, the, why is this important? Why are these names important for the church as well as for us? And I want us to see that Paul, in writing these names shows us that he is not a lone ranger, that he is not doing this on his own. We tend to think of Paul as this beast of a guy who's going in church planning on his own, going from city to city, preaching the gospel in the synagogues and in the city, and he's, all, he's just doing it by himself, or maybe one or two guys are with him. But what Paul shows us in this final greeting is that there is a community and a team around him for this simple reason that they, he needed them to advance the gospel. And if it's true for Paul, it's going to be true for us. The ministry of the gospel grows in community. And so we need gospel community in order for our growth as well as the church to grow. We need one another. We need to link arms with one another inside the church. And Paul shows us this. But he also shows us that when we, we link arms with one another, we also need to link arms with those outside of our walls. Look at verses 15 through 17. We see gospel partnerships. Paul writes here, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the, to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. You see, Paul could have just sent his own letter to Laodicea and to Hierapolis. But Paul wants these Christians to know each other. The partnership that we need for the gospel to advance is not just between one another in our church, but it's between other churches in our area and in our city. And guys, I want us to be cheerleaders for every Jesus-preaching church in town. We need to cheer for them and we need them to cheer for us in order for the gospel to advance. We are not big enough, we're not smart enough, and Dwayne and I are definitely not clever enough to preach the gospel to the entire city of Indianapolis in the state of Indiana. We need other gospel-believing churches that we are linking arms with. And so it's important for us to have...
and to be linking arms with them. And I want to close with this last verse. Paul writes, remember my chains. He signs this off on his own. And it's interesting that he ends this way, and I think that he ends this way not to bring pity upon the Colossians, but because of the gospel, his chains are their chains. And there's something normative about Paul's chains that he needed to remind them of. And it's this truth that we need to be reminded of today. That gospel ministry is not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be welcomed, but it is going to be worth it. So I long to see the district church become marked by men and women who have a rule of life that brings glory to God by being devoted to watchful and thankful prayer, devoted to evangelism that preaches the word of God with wisdom and boldness and clarity and graciousness that is seasoned with salt, that is also devoted to gospel community and gospel partnerships in order that God's name would be exalted and his kingdom would grow here in Indianapolis and all over the world. And I hope that that's your prayer as well. And I hope that this sermon would challenge you to not just make resolutions. Those, those are good. Those goals that we can have to be more like Christ are great, but that we would focus more on a rule of life or rhythms that we would establish in our lives that we can continue to mature in Christ day in and day out. And Paul closes this letter with one of my favorite phrases. Grace be with you. It's one of my favorite phrases because it, it, it shows what the Colossians have received and it reminds us of what we have received as well. And as we do every single week in taking communion, it's a reminder of that grace that we've been given. And it's a reminder of the grace that we will need to sustain us until God comes back or calls us home. As the old hymn says, it is grace that brought us safe thus far and grace that will lead me home. It's by God's grace that we are saved. Not of our own doing so that we can boast. And it's the same grace that sustains us day in and day out as we mature in Christ. And as we take communion, let us remember that. As we drink the juice and partake in the bread, let us remember the grace that has been shown to us in the breaking of Christ's body and the shedding of his blood. That Christ's righteousness through grace has been given to us. As 2 Corinthians reminds us, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His body broken, his blood poured out for us all, so that our sins could be washed away white as snow, and we could ado be adopted into the family of God. This is what we celebrate in communion every week. And I hope that you're reminded and you remember that as we partake. So I'm going to close this in prayer, and then the band's going to come back up, and we'll continue in worship. But I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to go before the Lord and celebrate the grace that's been given to you. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at